Hello, and welcome to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. My name's Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. So this month, you'll notice something different if you're a regular listener. I've been feeling a little under the weather, so our usually behind-the-scenes producer of the pod, Justin, has taken the reins. This month is World Blood Cancer Day, which aims to increase the number of stem cell donors for those with blood cancers who may need a transplant as part of their treatment. Justin spoke with Peter, who had a transplant 10 years ago this month. We also interviewed David, Peter's donor. They've been in touch for some time, creating a lovely story of how an act of kindness by a stranger led to a life saved and a long friendship. This month, I'm really pleased to be joined by Peter and David. Peter diagnosed with MDS in 2012, and uh, this May we'll be celebrating 10 years on the 24th, the anniversary of his stem cell transplant. Peter, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Pleasure. And uh, we're also joined by his donor, David. Who, David, thank you again for your time this afternoon. Uh, you okay? <laughs> Great. No, thank you both for joining us today. Getting into the story of your transplant and the donation and the two of you for the past 10 years, it's probably most apt to start at the beginning of things, really. And for us, and for Peter in particular, that was with your... MDS diagnosis in 2012. So, Peter, how did things start for you? How did that diagnosis come about? Would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, okay. So, um, just prior to, towards the end of 2011, I didn't have any section for hemochromatosis, which was a, a build of divine in the blood. And each time, I probably went about every four to six weeks to uh, take a pint or so of blood. Uh, and it kept the levels very low, kept them quite low to levels. In the background, they always test the birds just to see what's going on and everything else. And round about the, towards the end of 2011, they spotted that the platelet levels were dropping. And it seemed to give them some concern. It didn't really mean anything to me at the time. But they did drop quite dramatically. And I was going for weekly tests uh, to... And it got to a point where I was referred to a consultant, uh, normally just being dealt with by a nurse practitioner. But the consultant thought there was some issue and didn't really explain what the issue was. You know, we were still in the dark at that time. Uh, he said the, he would get probably a good result from a bone marrow biopsy. Okay, I said, well, can you explain that, please? Well, we take a bit of your bone marrow out and we examine it, etc. Okay. So we arranged to have that done. And uh, I think about a week later, I was called back in and they said, hmm, simple like this, you've got a problem. Um, there's nothing I can do for you. So I've got my wife sat next to me and she's looking like this and saying, I'm sorry, nothing you can do for us? Nothing I can do. Uh, but next week, you'll be at the Christie Hospital in Manchester. Uh, he said, it's it, it, it's a problem, and, but, but don't, don't worry, don't worry. Uh, they'll sort things out for you. Well, we live about two miles, three miles from Christie Hospital, and uh, we know it's the Centre for Excellence for Cancer Treatments, and uh, we have friends that actually work there, and we know, you know many people have been through the system at Christie. So it, it worried us a little bit, I must confess. 
Of course, especially that, that cryptic of a way of telling you, it sounds like, was a bit... Uh, yeah, that, that was bizarre. You know, it really was. It, it just, the guy just shrugged his shoulders. <laughs> yeah, when did it come to a bit more light and a bit more information on your end, really, of what, what exactly it is that you had? He didn't say it. He didn't say it at that point. Sure. But with, from meeting him at the Stockport Stepping Hill Hospital and getting the referral literally within a week to the Christie, Fantastic uh, consultant there, Mike. And he said, you've got quite a bit of a problem. And they did the bloods. And of course, he could tell that my platelet levels were dropping to around about 14, 12, 14 from, you know, they should be into the hundreds. He said, you do have a, a major problem. Do you not? And the crazy thing was I had no symptoms. You know, he said, you're not tired. I said, well, tired, but... We all get tired in our 60s, you know. I had retired some years before and uh, taken up another job working in Manchester and going out every day. Apart from being tired, I had no uh, physical symptoms, no bruising. But checked me out all over. Apparently the MDS at that point, bone marrow failure can result and show evidence of uh, bruising, blood spots, various things. Tiredness, uh, but of course we all feel a bit tired, don't we? I've been out for a day. Um, but I had none of that. And he said, you, you, you do have a serious problem and there's, there's only one solution. And he was fairly blunt. He went on to say, there's one cure for you. Uh, I'm not saying stem cell transplant. Didn't know what he was talking We didn't know what he was talking about. You know, these were all foreign words coming to us. And we're looking at each other, Mary and I, and saying, stem cell transplant? Bone marrow transplant? So when, when was the first time you heard the words MDS? On, on that occasion, it was the uh, 14th of March, the yeah. very first consultation. Uh, and it was, it, was, it was frightening, to be honest. Um, and he'd said that, it was on a Tuesday, I remember that, and he said, Thursday, we'll get a couple of bags of platelets made up from Sheffield and brought over for you and we're going to have to keep feeding in this you know, while we decide what we're going to do and you make the decision where to go from here do you want the stem cell transplant but he kept emphasising it's the only cure if you don't have the stem cell transplant you know, we can keep up transfusions for a few months you know, it's probably you might just survive till Christmas you know, we're in May Terrible, terrible feeling. So he said, well, here's all the information, booklets here, and the transplant nurse has gone out to meet us and have a chat. Took us on to the transplant uh, ward, had a chat, showed us around, explained what's going to happen. And then, you know, even then it, it, it just didn't register. So we're back with him, back in front of him. He said, we need to do, find you a donor. I said, okay, so I've got three children. No, we don't, we don't bother with children. Somebody, you know, they're not likely to be a, a good match, a tissue match favourable for you. And I'm thinking, well, what else can you do? I've got, I've got a twin sister. Ooh. So he, his eyes lit up. Would she, would she be willing to give a blood test? I said, she, she'd walk here from Macclesfield to, to give a blood test. <laughs> so, yeah. Right, so we'll arrange that. But in the, I didn't quite understand, but in the arranging for her to go for the 
But uh, they'd started the search on the Anthony Nolan register. So the test is my sister went along and she had the test and we were nowhere near compatible. Which was disappointing. She was disappointed. I understand uh, how she felt, really, because, you know, you'd do it, wouldn't you, for a relative, for anybody. But she had a, she was fine with it. And uh, the same consultation again, he said, but we've found your donor on the register. It looks like a perfect match. So how far along the line after that March consultation was this then? It must have been pretty soon after, I imagine. Weeks, three or four weeks. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, he told me at that point, at the very first consultation, you've got to start work. I said, stop work. I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah, I can't just walk away from <laughs> No work, no DIY, no gardening, nothing that can put you at risk of having an accident where, you know, you might bleed. You talked about the shock factor that came with that diagnosis. And because I can imagine for you, it was barely out of the blue and a lot of like you said kind of a lot of new information and like it's a quite a learning curve to those early days in particular how, was it a shock like how do you manage that learning curve really it's very hard you know my wife and i we, <clears throat> were very sensible you know we, we think we're sensible and mature and we had three grown-up children uh we're going to tell them when we're going to tell them you know well, we need to know i suppose and it was the tone of this is really serious that we were trying to emphasize but in a nice, calm way. So we did have a scrum down and we had a good chat about it with the rest of the family. And it seemed to be, it was the only option. So, you know, we had to go along with that. Uh, but the information, we knew nothing of it. It, it was a, the information that was in written form that we took away from the hospital was mind-blowing. I was like, I found science. <laughs> and it, We just didn't know what was happening. It meant nothing to us. What are you planning to achieve this year? Does it include free-falling from 15,000 feet? Maybe flying on a zip wire is more your thing? Join Team LC this year, raising vital funds, as well as your pulse rate. We'll support you all the way in raising the money. The question is, are you brave enough to take on the challenge? Simply search online for Leukaemia Care Zipwire or Leukaemia Care Skydive to find out more. I think for most patients diagnosed with a blood cancer i think before that diagnosis their knowledge is most commonly very little and so then you're suddenly like thrown headfirst into this world of blood cancer and stem cell transplants and bone marrow and terminology like up to your eyeballs with it like and it can it can be you know it could be a really hard learning curve especially in those early days but where we got to your story discovered you had a donor and that is where david enters the equation david's you were on the register at that point. What prompted you to join? Like, when did you join? What's your story of getting on the register, really? Well, I joined it in 2004. But it was because I was, I used to live with my nan and that. And I was coming downstairs and my nan was on the couch crying. I said, what's the matter with you? And she was watching this morning and there was a little girl that needed a bone marrow transplant. And she said, you know, I'd love to do that and try and say, well, you can't do it, I can do it. And so I, that's how I joined the register. So 2004 then, so that was quite a, quite a while then. So obviously this is casting your mind back a, a fair bit now. Um, do you remember what was involved in joining the register? And what, what did that actually involve? It was just a little spit in a tube. Sure. And then you send the tube off and that's it until you get like to the next stage. It's if you are a close match. But it's only a little spit in a 
little exactly i think it's like a little covid tube yeah. like a little spit in one of them yeah which is obviously a very uninvasive and quite an easy way to join the register really i think for a lot yeah. of people do you reckon <laughs> the general public like realize quite how easy it is to join the register no i think they think it's all blood test and that and you don't know what to expect. There should be a film on it or something. I think, obviously, you, you hear the like, stem cell register and bone marrow and people are imagining hefty syringes and medical equipment coming out. But to join the register, it is literally yeah. spitting in a tube and, and you're, you're yeah. away, really, aren't you? Um, signing up for the register and being on it for those years, like, were you expecting to hear back anything from it? Did you have any expectations while you were on the register at all? No, we were just waiting and waiting and nothing. And then I did get called up previously, but then at the last minute they said it's not going ahead. And then I got called up, can I go to London for a blood test? Is it a blood test, like an ECG? and Or it's full body MOT. Sure, yeah. yeah. So I was in 2012 then, early 2012, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. When did you hear that things were going ahead and this was actually going to happen and you were actually going to donate for the first time in eight years on the register? You were finally going to... When did you hear all that? And like, how, What was your reaction? Well, I went up to London with my brother and then we had all the tests, see, you know, see if my body's good. And then it was a couple of days later and I got a phone call saying you are the closest match. Could you, would you still go ahead? So like, yeah, definitely. They give you the choice going up to it, but... You can't pull out because it's somebody else's life at the end of the day. No, no, that's really, um, no, that's really honourable of you. And what was your reaction to that phone call? That's quite a, that's quite a phone call to receive. I was buzzing because I had a week off work. <laughs> <laughs> and what did? Obviously, we've talked a bit about public's idea of stem cell transplants and bone marrow and kind of all these aspects. What was your, what was your own? ideas and did they explain like much of the process to you and like what it actually involved when you actually kind of got called up to donate so what would it what would it entail for you uh, well they explained that there's two different types of procedures there's one like the blood test or there's one with the bone in your you know your bone marrow uh, and they say that it's always up to the other the patient's doctor on which one they think's best but it's high it's like 85 percent is the blood in terms of the, the process and kind of what it actually involved for you and like from your side of the coin, you got that call and it's, it's your turn. It's your time to shine, really, that week off from work. What did that week involve then for you? Five days before you get an injection and it just multiplies your bone marrow. And you get roughly at the same time each day. A nurse will come to your house or your work, whichever's easiest for you. Uh, that'll just multiply, multiply you. Then you go to London, you get your final injection go for a nice meal and a drink <laughs> and then you go to the hospital the next morning and and you're at the hospital then and so kind of what does that involve it was just an injection into one of my arms sure yeah and then you're hooked up to the machines but the hospitals are amazing it's it's a private hospital the one i went to in london i've not been to manchester but they just really look after you and you're never alone. You're always in, yeah, it's like my best friend came with me to the one in London. And they just look after both of you. It's amazing. And it sounds like they obviously made that process as, like, as comfortable and as, and as easy for you. Positive. Yeah. 
yeah it was positive no that's great um no, that's, that's really great you had a positive experience with that I found the webinars really interesting, again, because I think of the lack of information you're given during treatment. And if you are given information, often at the time, it just it's just in one ear, out the other. So at the time, I think I didn't really take in a lot of the information and my husband did. And so after treatment, I actually went back to your YouTube channel and watched a lot of your webinars. Most recently, there was one on acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which I found really useful. Leukemia Care's informational webinars are about the topics that matter to you, whether that be the current news in COVID, the latest developments in treatment, and much more. You can hear from patients and healthcare professionals alike, providing insight on all things leukemia. Watching it live even lets you post questions directly to those panels. Find out when our next webinar is scheduled by heading on over to our social media or our website, or to watch those you've already missed, check out our YouTube channel. In terms of... Peter, and your side of things, in terms of, it sounded like things moved quite quickly Very from quickly. that yes. diagnosis. And and it, from the get-go, the transplant was your treatment option, really. I was quite surprised to hear that, and the, the fact that they, there were no really alternatives at that point. No alternatives, no. It was transplant from day one, really. Yes. How did they explain the process to you, and kind of what it would evolve, involve from your side of things? Well, we, we got the information uh, once David had been identified as the uh, suitable donor, that he was a young man of uh, 25 at the time, David, and uh, a British male. That, that's the only information you get. You don't get any personal details other than that. Uh, and they explained the process that, you know, once further tests are done they, on me, they check my heart, they check your lung functions, everything possibly that could interfere with the transplant process. Uh, even to the point where I don't remember, is there anything else that can interfere with this process? I said, well, we've had all the tests. I said, the only issue I do have is a, a root canal filling. Oh, that will have to come out before transplant. <laughs> the whole tooth, yeah. But it, it, that in itself was a major operation virtually because it was done over two or three days. Really? So yeah. a dentist referred to a maxillofacial consultant at uh, one of the bigger hospitals in Manchester calling at the Christie on the morning to have the tooth taken out, extracted and getting two bags of platelets <laughs> because nobody would come near me. You know, people were frightened to breathe on me at one point because I personally know, you know, they knew I had no platelets. And we had to be at this hospital at about two or about nine o'clock in the morning and it was about four o'clock in the afternoon before they did the procedure. And of course, by that time, I'm flaked out and uh, not had a drink or anything to eat. And the platelet levels, I could see them marking on a board. They kept coming out, <laughs> taking blood tests, just dropping, plummeting, you know. Uh, if they don't do this soon, you know, we're going to have to go back and get some, some more platelets. Uh, but they went out with it late in the afternoon, and uh, that was a success. But it left me without a front, upper front tooth. But the process after that was fine. Um, I'd given up work. We had told us if we wanted to have a break or go away for a couple of weeks, do it because you won't. You know, this recovery process is going to take a year or two. Going to completely change your life because by this time we're getting so much information. Uh, I want to expect in the problems ahead. 
and the risks involved. So we, we uh, I suppose the next thing was we came on to admission day when you get, uh, you know, the cannulas and the Hickman line put in. And they start the chemotherapy treatment, which didn't seem to affect me for two or three days. You're in isolation. There's no way of leaving this particular room for four weeks. You know, you know you're in there for four weeks. Uh, you've got a long sweet bathroom. Visitors can, could come and see you, but under very, very strict hygiene conditions. And mainly it was just my wife every day. But the chemotherapy sort of kicked in after about day three. And I was having like school lunch, yeah. school dinner type meals, you know, lunch, three-course lunch, three-course evening meal. Putting in custard, you know, it's lovely. I'm thinking, this can't go on. But by about yeah. day four, the last thing I wanted to see was food. You know, you really were being drained, wiped out, uh, to the point where the, the science of it is hard to, hard to understand because it, they're taking out all your, virtually all your, wiping out virtually your current, present cells. Yeah. Make way for, for David's cells. Yeah. That, no, that, that's a really nice way of boiling it down, really. It's, yeah. it's kind of wiping out your, your current immune system for the, yeah. for the new one to really kick in. And I know, I think they, what we'd read and we were told that I think David had to provide 5 million cells, around about 5 million cells. You had 8 million. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, when it came to, we, we, we conditioned for seven days and uh, it was pretty awful. And on the final, on the day, they called day zero, I was very lucky. I had two nurses, the same two nurses, looked after me up for a whole week. Obviously not that night, during the night, but during the day. Uh, and they, one of them was on a learning curve from the clinic at the Crested. So they were very good. And it was amazing. You know, we lay there, my wife was with me on this. We didn't know what to expect. <laughs> I had no idea what David's cells were going to look like, but um, it's like, like half a bag of blood, a yellow solution came in and it got labels on it. And the two nurses were like, Oh, fantastic. Oh, wow. That is a good match, Peter. You know, well, I think you're doing well here. But I, I was really out of it. My wife was quite emotional. I'm thinking, you're thinking, Well, you know, this is. It's in my lifeline here. Exactly. <laughs> and it's this... Don't spill it. Don't drop it. I know. And it's just like this bag of... It's just like half a bag of blood, but it's such a yeah. high stakes... Yeah, it's such a high stakes thing for you. No, thank you for all that. And um, just like jumping back a second, obviously, before you actually received the transplants, how were you feeling about it? What were you... What were your kind of thoughts and feelings about it at that point like before you had it? Were you like... I can imagine nervous and we, we talked a lot, you know, about what what might happen, what might not happen. The last thing that they, I think, the week the week before consultation, before uh, admission, is the form which you have to sign where you suddenly give them the odds of success. And uh, but yeah, there's the no alternative really, uh, but it was quite. Quite worrying. It's quite worrying. Yeah. And um, obviously, kind of having that 
the chemotherapy to kind of prepare yourself and prepare your body for the transplants. Yes. Yeah. That was your first time you had chemotherapy. And I think the term that it kind of, it's quite a loaded term and it comes with oh, quite yeah, a lot of yeah. connotation and expectation of what, what you, and what you see about it in like media and TV and film and like, how are you feeling about starting chemotherapy for the first time? I really didn't know what to expect. I, I just thought it was a, something, you know, some sort of a chemical based thing that uh, sure. was going to do something, you know, maybe. We always, we always assumed it was a treatment for some characters. You know, you think, oh, what's... But this was something completely different. It was awful. <laughs> to be, if I was honest, I, if I'm honest, it really was uh, for me. And it, I have to stress, I do, I've talked about this a lot to people and I've talked to, I've over years, talked to different groups and things like that, but you need, I need to stress that it, what applies to me doesn't necessarily apply to somebody else. You know, they might react differently. They might be younger, they might be able to cope with it a little bit better. No, chemotherapy is very much always a case-by-case basis. You could take yeah. two people yeah. extremely similar in background and they could be complete, have completely different side effects. Like there's, never a, there's never a right or wrong answer really to that one. I, I, was, feeling, I was feeling quite happy that we, we were warned that you'd you know, have all these mouth sores and throat sores. Hair would drop out, fingernails might drop out. As the days were going on, I'm thinking, "Well, this is not affecting me." I could feel, I could see a change in my hands. The nails were getting whiter and sort of brittle. And one particular one morning, I, w- I woke up and all my hair was on the pillow, <laughs> so the hair had come out. And that was understandably such a massive day for you to kind of receive that transplant as you mentioned yourself earlier it was that was your lifeline to use your own words and then for you david when was the next time you heard anything really from the process and its success or failures really right well first of all the other bit as well people think it hurts and it's just a needle in your arm it goes through the machine and you're there for a few hours but you've got games there, they give you food and drinks, so you, you're happy. And after I did that, I went and got my hair cut, and they had the needle in my arm still, and then I went back. And I said, oh, we only wanted five million, but you got eight million. So they took the needle out. And then I went clubbing till four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> it's when people think it like it'll knock you out for a few days or something. It, no? No, that's a really spot-on point to make, that I think people see donating as this quite high efforts potentially like quite like we talked about earlier the kind of they they picture in their heads like big syringes and biopsies and quite like invasive quite high effort procedures really as part of it but if you were to try and dispel some of those myths and if someone was on the fence about it kind of what how would you convince them what would you what would you say to them you won't go club until four o'clock in the morning if you're in pain <laughs> no that's perfect no i thought that should definitely convince a few i'm sure <laughs> it's just like giving blood if they can give blood then they can give bone marrow and no it is it is something that we need to work on i think kind of in general really combat that the, the next day apart from like any hangovers from that 4am to the pub like, how were you feeling like the next day after you donated then? I was good, but I was buzzing as well because I have tried to give somebody a good chance at life. Exactly. So it, it's yeah. a buzz feeling as well. It's a perfect way of putting it. So then kind of after the fact and 
after Peter had kind of received your transplant then, kind of when was the next time, did you hear anything back really? When was kind of the next time that you heard anything? We were going through like a third person through with Anthony Nolan. So if I wrote Peter a letter, I'd have to send it to Anthony Nolan and then they would forward it on because you don't know any details about the other person. I think it, the way the process works in Britain is, I think it's, is it two years of anonymity between the two of you? So yeah. obviously um, you can't quite make direct contact, so as you said, between that third person and Auntie Nolan then. So were you guys in touch pretty pretty soon after the date then? Yeah, I think, I'm not sure if I wrote a letter first, asking you know, how we got on, because you do wonder like, oh, how are they getting on? But you've got no way of knowing who it, who it is. <laughs> and... What, what did you have to say to each other in those like, those first few letters? What what was her, like, what were you talking about? Well, myself, it was just like, oh, you know, are you all right? <laughs> have you beat it? <laughs> sure. And then you just want to find out, you know, if, if they have survived and how they're getting on. And just reassurance as well. as like, if you need any more, I'll, I'll be straight in London. And, and Peter, when did you kind of get the news that it was a successful transplant? And, and when did you kind of receive that fantastic news? I think it was about... I think I wrote to David about August. I uh, got a copy of a letter here and just saying that, you know, I was a, you, I was a recipient of yourselves. Uh, I just want to say thank you on behalf of uh, myself and the family. And uh, they seem to have taken. And uh, this is short and as brief as that. And it was David who wrote back saying, well, that's great, good news. And if you need any more, <laughs> just let me know. To hear that, Really, it was quite amazing. This May, the 24th, marks 10 years since that transplant for you. What would you say the impact of that day has been on your life for the last 10 years? For me, I, I think of David a lot. We tend to get in touch on anniversary date. Uh, I was ringing. I hope you didn't mind me saying this, but David's birthday is on Christmas Day. So I always give him a buzz. <laughs> don't always send him a present <laughs> but uh, I do you know just wish him happy birthday but uh, yeah we think because we've met you know I met his most quite a lot of his family uh, lots of people um, and it's just that kindness you know that and thoughtfulness and you know it's just a, a, such a wonderful thing to do really you know I just wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for Davis much you know, I can't emphasise enough how grateful I am. Ten years, you know, I've had ten years, which, you know, when I first started the process, it things were looking very, very grim. So, yeah, so it, it means a lot to me. We're just so grateful, the whole family, uh, for David, David's kindness. Uh, no, that's, that's fantastic to hear. And, um, and David, obviously, hearing that, and this ten years down the line now... I think it really stresses the importance more broadly for getting people on the stem cell register. And because I think you guys are really a testament to, for Peter, what was such a high stakes day. And such, obviously, these last 10 years have been because of you sacrificing, what, a few days, a few afternoons, like 10 years ago. And it's made. It sounds like a world of difference to uh, to to both. So, David, what would you what would you say to someone if you try to convince them or why they should join the stem cell register? 
your bone marrow grows back. Well, not only that, you have the injections for five days and multiplies your bone marrow. It's not affecting you after you get bone marrow. And I think people will think like, oh, they're not having my bone marrow, but you can produce more. And it's just, I can't wait to get called up again. Hopefully I do. <laughs> no, that's a fantastic attitude to have. That's amazing. And no, I think that's, that's actually quite an interesting point. It's the fact that you're not losing anything. It's just the other person is gaining so much from it, really, isn't it? Yeah. No, and that's great to hear. You, you touched on it briefly, actually. The first time the two of you met, obviously after, after this two years of anonymity has passed after the transplants, uh, it sounded like the two of you and your families got together. So tell me about that. That was nice because you've been waiting for so long to see how, you know, how they've got on and you just want the best for them, hope that you've helped them you know, survive. And then you actually meet the person and you've, you've sent a few letters in between. So it was just really nice. Was that the first time you guys could put a face to an name? Yes, really? I think it was. And Peter, for you, obviously, the stakes of your stem cell transplant were very personal and very high. So what would you say to someone who was on the fence about joining the register? What more would you say to convince them? Just get on. Please get on that register. I've got nephews. Everybody that's eligible you know, in my close family uh, have joined the register. My nephew's eldest son, he, he donated about a year before COVID. He, he got a call up and he only signed up because of you know, what I'd gone through. And I was lucky enough, well, able to go and sit with him for an hour, you know, whilst, whilst he gave his cells. And just like David's explained, uh, described, it, it's just so upbeat, you know, it's, it's nothing. You know, I'm fine, it's okay, I'm good. Well, I think your two story is a real shining example of the power of what a stem cell transplant and the power of change it can bring to someone's life here we all are kind of 10 years down the line chatting about it and um getting people on the register getting in touch with in the uk it's dkms or anthony nolan the kind of the big big charities kind of getting people onto that register and so no really it's been really great to speak to you both and i really appreciate your time and sharing your story with us and giving us this chance to share it uh so Thank you so much, guys. For uh, and, um, It's been great speaking with you. Okay, thank you, Justin. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline on 080 88 010 444. See you next month. <laughs>